Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olivest. Today we will be covering two speeches by Eleanor Roosevelt that were delivered to the United Nations in the aftermath of World War II. First, an open letter to the women of the world, and second, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Roosevelt referred to the Declaration in particular as being a new Magna Carta for humanity, and it truly was a revolutionary document that continues to be a reference point for international human rights. But before we dive into these remarkable texts, I want to introduce my reading partner for today, Lucy Olivest. Hi, Lucy. Thanks for being here. Hi, thanks for having me. Lucy is my second daughter, and a fun fact about my three daughters is that they all have different hair and eye colors, so we call them our Neapolitan pack because we have a chocolate, of a strawberry, and a vanilla. And Lucy is our strawberry. She has red hair and green eyes, and she's also about five inches taller than I am now. Um, but Lucy, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Of course. I'm currently a senior in high school, which means much of my time is spent doing schoolwork and college applications. But in my free time, I enjoy writing, doing theater, especially Shakespeare, and learning about all things history. I'm also an excellent organizer, and I've been told I'm good at doing accents from all over the British Isles, but no, I will not demonstrate. No, that's so rude. I was going to have you demonstrate. I have to say also, you are an excellent organizer, and that is no thanks to me because I never taught you that. You were born an excellent organizer, and your accents are incredible. Thank you. Okay, so I also like to um, ask my reading partners about breaking down patriarchy and um, like maybe what it means to you or why you agreed to be part of this project. I was so excited to be part of this project, not only because I'm so proud of my mom for all of the work she's put in, but also because I feel like it's my responsibility as a young woman to educate myself on what's essentially my history. As someone who loves history and wants to study it further in college, I think it's crucial that I learn the stories of half of the human population. And I honestly feel let down by how little my public education has taught me about women's history. And I can't imagine it's going to get dramatically better even in college. It seems like people don't study women's history unless they major in women's studies. So in order to fill in that huge gap in my knowledge of history and do what I can to resist the patriarchy, which has always frustrated me, I was eager to take these first steps on my journey towards enlightenment and empowerment. That's awesome. I love that. Um, it, and it's true. I had you show me your AP U.S. history textbook. You remember this probably mm -hmm. at that one time and just see how many women were in there. I was really curious about whether it was the same as when I was in high school or if hopefully it was better. And I think for the most part, it, it's, it's somewhat better than when I, when I was in high school, but it seemed like the women's stories were just still sidelined in those special, like, blue highlighted paragraphs. Right? Yeah, it's, it's like, fun fact, we yeah. have women. Um, <laughs> but I, I got the sense that my teacher was adding more material to the curriculum that wasn't in the book, which I was super grateful for. But at the same time, when she would add extra stuff about women, I kept thinking, why isn't this in the textbook? Right. Yeah. 
Well, I, sh I should thank your teacher then because she really was a fantastic teacher. And you ended up knowing a ton more than I had ever learned about history in general, honestly, throughout high school and about women's history specifically. In fact, the reason I asked you to do this episode on the UN declarations and Eleanor Roosevelt was because of that one day when you were talking about it and teaching me all kinds of things that I had never heard before. So um, I'm really grateful that you agreed to do this episode with me. I'm super excited. Um, but before we get into the text, can you tell us about the author of the text and kind of the historical context that led to Eleanor Roosevelt writing these speeches? Yes. Anna Eleanor Roosevelt was born on October 11th, 1884. Sadly, both of her parents and one of her brothers died when she was young. At 15, she attended school in London, then returned to the U.S., and when she was 21 years old, she married her fifth cousin once removed, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, in 1905. The Roosevelt's marriage was complicated from the beginning by Franklin's controlling mother, Sarah, and after Eleanor discovered her husband's affair with her secretary, Lucy Mercer, in 1918, she resolved to seek fulfillment in leading a public life of her own. She persuaded Franklin to stay in politics after he was stricken with a paralytic illness in 1921, which cost him the normal use of his legs, and began giving speeches and appearing at campaign events in his place. Following Franklin's election as governor of New York in 1928, and throughout the remainder of Franklin's public career in government, Roosevelt regularly made public appearances on his behalf, and as first lady while her husband served as president, she significantly reshaped and redefined the role of first lady. Though widely respected in her later years, Roosevelt was a controversial first lady at the time that her husband held office. FDR served four terms in office, this was before the two-term limit was put in place, making her the longest-serving first lady of the United States. She was often criticized for her outspokenness, particularly on civil rights for African Americans. She was also the first presidential spouse to hold regular press conferences, write a daily newspaper column, write a monthly magazine column, host a weekly radio show, and speak at a national party convention. On a few occasions, she publicly disagreed with her husband's policies. She advocated for expanded roles for women in the workplace, the civil rights of African Americans and Asian Americans, and the rights of World War II refugees. Following her husband's death in 1945, Roosevelt remained active in politics for the remaining 17 years of her life. She pressed the United States to join and support the United Nations and became its first delegate. She served in this capacity from 1945 to 1952. She also served as the first chair of the UN Commission on Human Rights and oversaw the drafting of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Later, she chaired the John F. Kennedy Administration's Presidential Commission on the Status of Women. By the time of her death on November 7, 1962, Roosevelt was regarded as one of the most esteemed women in the world, and in her obituary, the New York Times called her the object of almost universal respect. That's amazing. Thanks, Lucy. Um, one more piece of context which will help us understand these speeches is remembering the historical moment in which they were written. So remember that World War I from 1914 to 1918 had been called the war to end all wars. The carnage that came with automatic weapons and chemical warfare was unlike anything human beings had ever done to each other. And by the end, 20 million people had died and 21 million, it's estimated, had been wounded. So that loss of life 
collectively traumatized the countries involved to the point that they said that God had died in the trenches. So can you imagine how veterans of World War I and their families must have felt as they faced another world war within their own lifetimes? It's all, it's unbelievable. I, I can't even imagine. And uh, in World War II, of course, the human cost was even more staggering. By the end of World War II, it had ended up being the, the deadliest military conflict in history. An estimated total of 70 to 85 million people perished, and an estimated 25 million were wounded. So adding to the grief of death and injury after the war was over, it was only gradually that the world learned of the full extent of the Nazi campaign against Jewish people and other people that they deemed undesirable. And after the war was over and the Allies entered the concentration camps, they saw the gas chambers, of course, and the mass graves, and they learned about the final solution of genocide. So it was in this context that the allied countries banded together with other countries joining them and made the goal of ending all war. They created the United Nations, and its first charter affirmed, quote, faith in fundamental human rights and dignity and worth of the human person. And they committed all members to promote, quote, universal respect for and observance of human rights and fundamental freedoms for all, without distinction as to race, sex, language, or religion, end quote. So the first meeting of the General Assembly of the United Nations was held in London in January of 1946. During this convention, Eleanor Roosevelt addressed a meeting of women and read to them an open letter to the women of the world, inviting them to sign the document. And so now this is a really cool moment on the podcast because for the first time, we're going to actually hear a clip of the document read by the woman who wrote it. We looked for a clip actually last time of Virginia Woolf's voice for last week's episode, but um, there's only one recording of Virginia Woolf, and it's not of her reading any of her works. So this will be a, a really special moment because we'll get to hear Eleanor Roosevelt herself um, reading her own work. So here she is reading part of the open letter to the women of the world. This first assembly of the United Nations marks the second attempt of the peoples of the world to live peaceably in a democratic world community. This new chance for peace was won through the joint efforts of men and women working for common ideals of human freedom at a time when need for united effort broke down barriers of race, creed, and sex. Isn't that amazing to hear her voice? It's incredible. Okay, so now we're going to read an open letter to the women of the world, and we'll make some comments as we go. So it's quite a short speech, and after that we'll go on to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and we'll just highlight a few points from that document because that one's a lot longer. So... Um, Lucy, do you want to start us off with the open letter to the women of the world? Yes. The speech starts, quote, This first assembly of the United Nations marks the second attempt of the peoples of the world to live peaceably in a democratic world community. 
This new chance for peace was won through the joint efforts of men and women working for common ideals of human freedom at a time when the need for united effort broke down barriers of race, creed, and sex. In view of the variety of tasks which women performed so notably and valiantly during the war, we are gratified that 18 women delegates and advisors are representatives from 11 of the member states taking part in the beginning of this new phase of international effort. We hope their participation in the work of the United Nations organization may grow and may increase in insight and skill. To this end, we call on the governments of the world to encourage women everywhere to take a more active part in national and international affairs, and on women to come forward and share in the work of peace and reconstruction as they did in the war and resistance, end quote. I learned quite a bit about what women actually did during the war in my U.S. history class last year, and it was shocking. In previous wars, such as the American Revolution and the Civil War, we really only hear about women contributing to the war effort by nursing wounded soldiers, sending information through letters, and sewing uniforms and flags. But in the Second World War, when most of the men were gone, women took over literally every job that the men had done before. They were in factories, welding huge metal parts for planes, manufacturing weapons, and actually ended up being more productive than the men had been. At their height, they were churning out 4,000 tanks and 4,500 planes per month. This is why we now look back on symbols like Rosie the Riveter. They weren't just sending food and managing their family's finances. They were wielding power tools, and many were even fighting. There were several civilian organizations like the Women Air Force Service Pilots and the Women's Army Corps, but others were officially in the military with the Coast Guard and Volunteer Emergency Service with the Navy. But of course, it was very difficult to be a woman in these male-focused environments. There were very few opportunities for women of color. The women who were hired in factories during the war were immediately fired when it ended. And there were even cases where female pilots were killed by their male counterparts. Men would put sugar or rags in the women's engines, acid in their parachutes, or slash their tires, which led to forced landings and sometimes deadly crashes. It was all because they felt threatened by women entering what they believed to be their sphere. It takes a lot of insecurity and misogyny to risk sabotaging your own military for the sake of establishing dominance. As for the women at home, there were in total about 19 million women working, and until the men came home, the role of women and the family was entirely reconstructed. When the men did come home, however, everything was restored to how it had been before. Women who had fought were not given veteran status until the 70s. The military made no official recognition of their contributions, and the expectation of the subservient housewife was firmly reinstated. That is so crazy. That is a lot of information that I had never learned until you just said it. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um that's crazy. I didn't even know about that phenomenon where women had – I didn't really know where Rosie the Riveter came from, mm. first of all. Um, I mean, I guess I knew the era, but I hadn't thought of it being like the Riveter. Like, mm -hmm. isn't that – like a rivet is some sort of mechanical thing. Yeah. It's like a, 
a person working in a factory, right? Yeah, yeah it's crazy. Um, I since since you kind of brought this up when you were studying it in U.S. history, I've seen it mentioned a couple of times. I've noticed in different media, like on Call the Midwife, they talk about it, right? Because yeah. Call the Midwife happens right after World War II, and they mention it. And then I was watching the show Agent Carter, and yeah. they mention it there too. And I thought, like, okay, I think people are starting to talk about that period of history more, or maybe I just never noticed it, but. That was really an incredible bit of history. And, um, you know, tying it back to that opening part of the open letter to the women of the world, when she's encouraging women everywhere to take a more active part in national and international affairs, just like they had done with, during the war, right? And yeah. don't just recede into the background again. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, that's that's awesome. Okay, here's the next part of the open letter. Quote, We recognize that women in various parts of the world are at different stages of participation in the life of their communities, that some of them are prevented by law from assuming the full rights of citizenship, and that they may therefore see their immediate problems somewhat differently. I love this. I think this is such an important point. Um, It's so important to recognize the different place that women find themselves in, right? And that there isn't a universal experience of what it means to be like a quote unquote woman, right? Right. Like it's different for everybody. And when I think about even our within like our own country, our own time right now, even within my own circle of women, I personally know some women who believe that they should obey their husbands. And like they really still kind of believe that they shouldn't leave the domestic sphere and they were raised to be ladylike and demure their whole lives. Right. And that's very much the, you know, that's their world. That's Mm -hmm. the world they live in. And then I also personally know, and I'm friends with women who were raised by like activist feminist mothers who came right out of the women's liberation movement. And they're, and these women are leaders in their careers and in every realm of their lives And I know women everywhere in between, like personally in my own life. And I know women who have chosen to have no children. I have literally, I know a woman who has 11 children and I, and everything in between. And so that's just among the women I know. And so if you expand that circle out to like our whole country, and then if you expand that circle out to this is the United Nations, right? And so she's giving, this open letter is addressed to the women of the world in the 1940s, you can imagine the diversity of women's experiences all over the world. And I I mean, it makes me think of the class I took a couple of years ago on international women's health and human rights. And that's actually, that class is offered on Coursera, if anyone is interested. And I found it really, I mean, truly life-changing. It's taught by Anne Firth Murray. Um, so if you look it up, International Women's Health and Human Rights, offered through by Anne Firth Murray at, at Stanford, but it's on Coursera. Um, but we we studied, I mean, all kinds of things that go on all over the world. Child marriage, where girls are married off at ages 12 to 16 to much older men. That is some girls and women's reality that they're mm-hmm. dealing with. And that's still very commonly practiced in some places. And female genital cutting, um, different education rates in different places. There are so many wor- girls in our world right now who have to drop out of school to help at home when they're still children and then they get married super young and have babies every year and don't have access to birth control. Um, and so there's just such diverse experiences of girls and women 
all over the world, right? And and in some places, like we we are so lucky we can speak freely. I can do this podcast mm-hmm. and I'm not worried about what's going to happen to me. But there are places where women put themselves in grave danger for speaking out. If you think of Malala Yousafzai and others. So anyway, I just think it's really wise that Roosevelt acknowledges the different circumstances that women find themselves in within each country and from country to country. And I think she's kind of acknowledging like it may be against the law, some of the things that she's going to advocate for Mm -hmm. in this universal declaration that she is, is saying like, you need to be careful and aware of your circumstances and do what works and what's the next step for you in your circumstances. Anyway, I just thought that was really great that she was aware of that. Um, Okay, Lucy, can you read the next part? Yes. Quote, finding ourselves in agreement on these points, we wish as a group to advise the women of all our countries of our strong belief that an important opportunity and responsibility confronts the women of the United Nations. One, to recognize the progress women made during the war and to participate actively in an effort to improve their standard of life in their countries and participate in the work of reconstruction so that there will be qualified women ready to accept responsibility when new opportunities arise. End quote. This, this refers to the information I just shared about women's advances out of necessity during the war. Quote two, to train their children, boys and girls alike, to understand world problems and the need for international cooperation. Three, not to permit themselves to be misled by anti-democratic movements now or in the future. Four, to recognize that the goal of full participation in the life and responsibilities of their countries and of the world community is a common objective toward which the women of the world should assist one another, end quote. Okay, this gives me chills because I I think if it weren't for this history project, studying all of these essential texts chronologically, I don't think I would appreciate what a big deal those statements are, especially if you take number two and number four together. Eleanor Roosevelt says that we need to train boys and girls alike to understand world problems. She says men and women should have the goal of full participation in the life and responsibilities of their countries and the world community. This was written just a few years after Virginia Woolf, right? Look how much has changed from the time of separate spheres ideology Mm -hmm. and the angel in the house, right? Women just one generation prior to this were being actively discouraged and even prohibited from full participation in the life of their country. Right. I mean, even the the right to vote was mm-hmm. so recent. They couldn't participate in civic life. They mm-hmm. weren't allowed to. Right. So this is really amazing. And it seems to me that the war changed things drastically in the women in the way the women saw themselves. Mm-hmm. Right. What they were yeah. allowed to do, but just their own sense of empowerment. Um, And of course, number three is really important too, where she says that women should not allow themselves to be misled by anti-democratic movements. And that, of course, is in the wake of a a fascist dictatorship nearly overrunning all of Europe. Um, But I love the way she phrases that too, like women should not allow themselves to be misled. She's calling on women everywhere to be educated and to be critical thinkers and to question, right? Mm-hmm. To not let themselves be vulnerable to somebody telling them what to do and just going along with it. And that also like flies in the face of some of these earlier um, 
I guess, limitations that women were under earlier in history, right? Where they were, I, I was just, I'm just remembering the episode on Sarah Grimke where the pastor wrote the letter and said that his congregations should, if they had any questions, they needed to go to their pastor to ask the questions, right? Mm. And that women were told not to question things and they were just told to believe people. And Eleanor is just saying, no, ask questions, be a critical thinker, anything you hear, run it past your own conscience and past your own, um, your own intellect so mm -hmm. that you're not a uh, prey to other people's ideas anyway. Okay. So next we have, that's the end of the open letter to the women of the world. And next we're going to do the universal declaration of human rights. So before we start reading parts of that, can you tell us a little bit about it and give us some context, Lucy? A few months after the UN's first meeting in January of 1946, they decided to draft an international bill of rights. The whole world was reeling from the atrocities that they were learning about that had happened during the war, and the UN decided there needed to be a declaration that people could point to to define the rights of all human beings to keep such tragedies from happening again. The committee had 18 members from various national, religious, and political backgrounds so as to try to be representative of humanity. In February 1947, the Commission established a special Universal Declaration of Human Rights Drafting Committee chaired by Eleanor Roosevelt of the United States to write the articles of the Declaration. The committee met in two sessions over the course of two years. The document consists of a preamble and 30 articles, some of which have multiple subpoints. So we're, there's no way we're going to get through all of them. So instead, Lucy and I chose a couple of points each, and we'll take turns highlighting the ones that stuck out to us the most. So I'll start with the preamble. So this is the preamble of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948. Oh, and I should note too, in the preamble, a lot of the um, sentences start with the word whereas, and we were both kind of thrown off by that word because we think of whereas meaning like in contrast or comparison with the fact that, and then another clause in the sentence. But there's a second meaning, especially in legal preambles, where the word whereas means taking into consideration the fact that, right? And so that's how it's used here mm -hmm. in the document. But we kept thinking, we kept waiting for the other clause, like, whereas this is true. And we're like, what? What's the, where's the other half of the sentence? Uh, anyway, so it all starts with whereas. Um, quote, here's the first part. Quote, whereas recognition of the inherent dignity and of the equal and inalienable rights of all members of the human family is the foundation of freedom, justice, and peace in the world. That's the first uh, sentence. So again, doing this history project has given me such perspective, having just recently read the Declaration of Independence in the United States and the Declaration of the Rights of Man in France, both of which completely neglected women and completely neglected people of color um, who, are, who were in the United States at the time enslaved. I'm really like emotional reading this and thinking, finally, it says all members of the human family. That means every single person. And you can't go back to the declaration like you could in the United States or in France mm -hmm. and say, well, it does only say men. Right. And what we mean by that is white male landowners, right? No, mm -hmm. 
it's very clear, and I know she was intentional about that, about saying every member of the, all members of the human family. That's who this is addressed to, and that's who these articles apply to. Mm -hmm. Okay, so next point. Whereas disregard and contempt for human rights have resulted in barbarous acts which have outraged the conscience of mankind and the advent of a world in which human beings shall enjoy freedom of speech and belief and freedom from fear and want has been proclaimed as the highest aspiration of the common people. I'm going to skip the word whereas. <laughs> I'm just going to read the, read the sentences. It's easier to understand that way. It is essential if man is not to be compelled to have recourse as a last resort to rebellion against tyranny and oppression, that human rights should be protected by the rule of law. It is essential to promote the development of friendly relations between nations. The people of the United Nations have in the charter reaffirmed their faith in fundamental human rights, in the dignity and worth of the human person and in the equal rights of men and women, and have determined to promote social progress and better standards of life in larger freedom. Okay, and I have to pause there too. Equal rights of men and women. Finally, now people can choose whether or not they want to work to make that ideal a reality. Mm -hmm. It's aspirational, I guess, still, but at least it's now articulated as an aspiration, and we have it written down in an international document. So I'm going to um, stop there from the preamble. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But it, reading this kind of brought up the question, I guess, I wonder if countries would read that part, especially the part about men and women being equal, that she, Eleanor Roosevelt, is just proclaiming that. And I wonder if there's anyone who like reads that and actively opposes this preamble or this article and or this declaration in general some i would guess that some countries like probably don't even know about it and some may know about it but ignore it and and some places might think it's kind of condescending for a bunch of countries to get together and presume to write a code and then like make a big declaration right right cuz cuz not every country is a part of it so it's right. the united nations of not all the nations <laughs> so there's no reason for any country not a part of the UN to pay attention. I, I thought of it kind of like a classroom of kids where some of them form a club and they say the classroom must follow the golden rule, which is great, but they have no more power than any kid in the class who isn't a part of the club. Right. The club could inspire other kids to join or follow their rules, but the bully could still do whatever they want. Right. And obviously the UN is an official organization, but they really only have influence among themselves. Right. Totally. And we could have a whole conversation about whether the United Nations has the right to impose its will, right, or mm -hmm. and impose its values on non-participating countries. And that would be interesting. But yeah. I guess in the interest of time, I guess we'll just have to look into that later. But um, thinking of about this proclamation and the equal rights of women, I wonder if some groups actively say, no, we do not believe in the equal rights and dignity of all people of all human beings, or if they just disagree about how equal should be defined, right? Like, it does make me wonder now that the Taliban, for example, is taking over in Afghanistan again. And I, I've read articles about how the women of Afghanistan are terrified, right, now that the Taliban's taking over again. And um, they have prohibited girls from going to school and women from working and leaving their homes without chaperones and stuff. And 
So I'm just wondering if in some parts of the world, including that's the one that comes to my mind, but you know how Aristotle said in essentially like women are not equal in mm-hmm. dignity. They're not equal in value. And there's actual like disdain for women or I, I wonder if it's more like benevolent patri- – I don't know if there's places too that are more benevolently patriarchal, like the, the Victorian cult of domesticity that says women are equal, um, but they just do their very important job at home, right. right? I mean, we've talked about that a lot in this podcast, but I guess those just were my questions as we um, as we talk about this declaration, how it's being received by different people as they hear that phrase – that men and women should have equal rights, right? Mm -hmm. This proclamation. I'm not sure how that hits different people. In any case, let's move on, and I will take Article 14 and 16. So Article 14 says, um, Part 1, Everyone has the right to seek and to enjoy in other countries asylum from persecution. So... Thinking about asylum seekers always breaks my heart. I just feel like life is so unfair with the luck of the draw of which country you happen to be born into, right? Which family, which neighborhood, which side of an arbitrarily created border you happen to be born on, right? Um, I feel like in our family, this is a constant presence in our lives because our family has, well, for a lot of reasons, but we have a strong connection to Latin America, in particular, my husband and I. Um, each separately lived in South America when we were in college. And there are many people in Latin America whom we know and love very much who still live there. And also just living in California all these years and sending you guys to Spanish immersion school. And we all in our family, we all speak Spanish and we just have had dear friends from all over Latin America. And we've had some awareness of some situations in Latin American countries where people struggle with safety and security through no fault of their own. And I, I would say like we know so many people who are compassionate and wonderful and understanding and kind, but I'm also really continually stunned at other people's lack of empathy, honestly, and lack of willingness to ask themselves honestly what they would do if they were in someone else's shoes. Mm-hmm. Um, This reminded me of, so Rochelle Burnside, you know Rochelle, who read The Angel in the House with me. Um, She did a project on young women living in our area who were asylum seekers from San San Salvador in El Salvador. And she, she asked me to translate the testimonies of some teenage girls that she had interviewed. Um, These girls' family members had been murdered. They said they lived in constant fear of being raped by gang members. Every day, all day long. Wherever they went, they were always scared of being raped. Um, In San Salvador right now, there is a violent patriarchal culture of men's assumption of ownership of women's bodies, which manifests itself in um, all kinds of different horrific ways, including gang initiation rituals of like gang raping teenage girls and gang leaders choosing which virgins they want for themselves and branding them with branding irons. I literally listened and translated a girl, a girl's story who was talking about that that had happened to people she knew and she mm-hmm. was terrified that was going to happen to her. Um, and, so, and also several of the girls Rochelle interviewed that I helped to translate um, 
talked about their school teachers, their male school teachers, cornering them in the classroom after class and telling them that they would only give them an A in class if they slept with them. So just thinking about who asylum seekers typically are, I just think of myself as a parent. In in the case of these girls, it was often the parents or some cases the grandparents or like other family members, uncles and aunts of these teenage girls had taken them and escaped and had somehow gotten to the United States to seek asylum from this gender-based violence. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what you do. That's what you do when you're a parent and you see that your daughter is in daily danger of being raped or that your son is in daily danger of being murdered or being recruited to be in a gang, yeah. right? You get your kids out of danger and you do it no matter what it takes and whether or not it's legal, you mm-hmm. you save your children, right? You need a better life for your children. So when I read that um, sentence about people's right to seek and enjoy asylum, I just heard those girls' voices in my ears again, and I just imagined how I would feel if I had been born somewhere that wasn't safe for me or especially for my children. I would do anything to keep them safe, and I would go anywhere. So um, I think we just need to kind of run that philosophical test that I mentioned in the episode with Lindsay on the vindication of the rights of women that talks about the veil of ignorance, right? And talks mm-hmm. about like, you just ask yourself whether you would be willing to get dropped onto the globe anywhere and be born anywhere in anybody else's circumstances. And if not, then that means that something's not right. The system isn't just for everybody. And I think that that's what this article of the the Declaration of Human Rights is trying to address and to mitigate the damage for, right? Because if you are going to be born into a gang-infested neighborhood, Um, where you're in constant danger or your daughter is of being raped, then you just need to be able to get out. So it's only fair to make a law that other people can get out of that if they need to, because those people could have just as easily been you, right? Mm -hmm. I completely agree. And something that I thought of was the hypocrisy of white Americans telling, especially non-white immigrants, that they're not welcome here Mm -hmm. because every single white American came from immigrants. I think about my own heritage and because my people came from Ireland during the potato famine and the Netherlands after World War II, I have no right to look at another person escaping poverty or war and say that they deserve asylum less. Yeah. Amen. True. Okay. Um, I have also Article 16, and then I'll turn it over to you, Lucy, for your articles. Mine are all kind of front-loaded together. Um, I chose Article 16, which is about marriage, and there are three different points, and I'm just going to talk about them really briefly, Um, but they were very interesting to me. Number one, quote, Men and women of full age, without any limitation due to race, nationality, or religion, have the right to marry and to found a family. They are entitled to equal rights as to marriage, during marriage, and at its dissolution. And I just thought, wait, what? How did I never hear of this? Why did I not hear this referenced when marriage rights for the LGBTQ plus community were being debated in the U.S.? I I think that's just another case of language that isn't as inclusive as we would want nowadays. Mm. It it protects the marriage rights of individuals without any limitation due to race, nationality, or religion, but it says nothing about 
sexual orientation or gender identity. So in this case, I guess we have to celebrate the win for interracial couples and remind ourselves that this was written in 1948. Okay, you're right. I guess that's true. It does have to, I mean, in a legal document, it does have to specify every single category, right? right? And it doesn't mention, like you said, sexual orientation or gender identity. I guess I read it and just saw like, everyone has equal rights to have a marriage. And I was like, what? Yeah, I get, I mean, I guess you're right. Specifically, it doesn't mention that. But I guess, and the other point to bring up, I guess, is the right to dissolve a marriage because the last word is it's, they have rights for its dissolution. So the right to divorce is really mm-hmm. important as well in that article. Um, good point. And I love your attitude of celebrating the win yes. <laughs> and giving the benefit of the doubt that sometimes just things aren't on people's minds. And they just have blind spots still, right, yeah. in the 1940s. Progress always happens through baby steps. Yes, that is that is true. Um, okay, the second point in this marriage article is, quote, marriage shall be entered into only with the free and full consent of the intending spouses, end quote. Okay, and then we could have a long co- conversation about what's a good age for consent, right? But mm-hmm. um, I did as I mentioned, a project on uh, child marriage in Anne Firth Murray's class. Lucy, you helped me with it, actually, mm-hmm. I remember. Um, uh, if li- I don't have time. We don't have time to discuss this. But if listeners are interested, I would really recommend looking up the work of National, Geogra- National Geographic photographer Stephanie Sinclair. Um, she did a project called Too Young to Wed. Um, and I believe it's on like a National Geographic website, but also the New York Times Um, featured it. And there are several different articles with amazing, beautiful photographs of girls and women all over the world, actually, that um, get married at far too young an age, often to much older men. And so I would really look at that. Um, And then the third point from this marriage article is, quote, the family is the natural and fundamental group unit of society and is entitled to protection by society and the state, end quote. And I agree. And the thing that came to my mind there quickly is just families should never be separated. Um, Children should never, ever, ever be separated from their parents Mm -hmm. for any reason in any circumstance. Um, Families need to be kept together, and they are entitled to protection, especially children staying with their parents. Mm -hmm. And that's all I have for Article 16. I have Article 18, and it says, quote, Everyone has the right to freedom of thought, conscience, and religion. This right includes freedom to change his religion or belief, and freedom, either alone or in community with others and in public or private, to manifest his religion or belief in teaching, practice, worship, and observance. End quote. This is such an important article because of the persistence of discrimination and hate crimes, especially against the Jewish and Muslim communities. And this declaration of religious rights is another thing that really impresses me, actually, and I wish people would reflect more on this issue. But one part of these articles that I've noticed is the use of only he, him pronouns. And while this does not surprise me in the slightest, I still find it frustrating. And I think men don't think about it, but every time non-male people hear only those pronouns, we notice. And we, or at least I, think that does not apply to me. I'm not included in that. 
And we actually talked about it briefly in my civics class because some people have used that as a justification for not having a female president because in the Constitution, the president is always referred to as he. And in Article 1, which we skipped, it talks about treating one another, quote, in a spirit of brotherhood, end quote, which should be siblinghood. Of course, in cases like this, it's just because the writers are used to this grammar. But the fact that our language is set up in this exclusive way makes me frustrated. Mm -hmm. And the way we talk about people has always been focused on men. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I've always noticed that too. And it is really, it's always been hard for me. It reminds me of Simone de Beauvoir and how she pointed out in her book, The Second Sex, that man is primary. Like he asserts himself as the primary person. So he's the main character of the whole human story. And the woman is a secondary supporting character. So our language is male because the protagonist speaker is male. Right. Right. In Article 19, it says, quote, Everyone has the right to freedom of opinion and expression. This right includes freedom to hold opinions without interference and to seek, receive, and impart information and ideas through any media and regardless of frontiers, end quote. So my question here is what happens when someone's opinion involves denying another person their rights? We see this controversy often today with the sometimes ambiguous line between free speech and hate speech. Mm. Free speech is so important to democracy, and it has been taken away on several occasions in American history. There was censorship in the late 1790s when the Adams administration found newspaper articles on the government too unflattering, and there have been instances where the freedoms of speech and press have been limited like during the Civil War and with the Sedition Act during the first Red Scare. That being said, speech that incites violence should not be protected. But then we have to ask, how, how do we define violence and who gets to decide? This is all to say it's difficult to firmly establish universal rights if there's a sort of paradox in which someone has the right to take away another person's right. Right. That's such a great point. It reminds me, Grandpa always says, um, your right to throw a punch ends at the tip of my nose. <laughs> Have you ever heard him no, say that? Funny. It's really good, right? Yeah. But it it is it does get complicated. Like right. you said, like who has, I mean, that's a very clear physical act. So that one mm -hmm. is easy to decide, right? Like I might want to throw my fist around, but it, I. And you can, and it doesn't hurt anyone. <laughs> right, exactly. But yeah, I love that you brought up those really, really complicated issues of hate speech and mm -hmm. of um, inciting violence. Those are really tricky issues. For Article 5, it says, quote, one, everyone has the right to a standard of living adequate for the health and well-being of himself and of his family, including food, clothing, housing, and medical care, and necessary social services, and the right to security in the event of unemployment, sickness, disability, widowhood, old age, or other lack of livelihood in circumstances beyond his control. Two, motherhood and childhood are entitled to special care and assistance. All children, whether born in or out of wedlock, should enjoy the same social protection, end quote. I absolutely agree that all children are entitled to special care and assistance, and motherhood is beautiful, and I love you, Mama. <laughs> but it has always been weird to me that women and children are grouped together. 
I thought of the movie Titanic, where in, in the state of emergency, they say women and children first. Like, yes, put the children on the boats. But then prioritize people who can't swim or something like that. But dividing it by gender doesn't really make sense to me. There are circumstances where a bigger, stronger person is better able to do the job. And generally speaking, men are taller and have more muscle mass. And those cases of physical safety used to be really relevant for our ancient ancestors. But those situations are very, very rare now. But society still makes rules based on that. And women are still grouped in with the kids as if they're not adults. Yeah, that's true. And that's, I do feel the same way, actually, that it always makes me bristle when I hear that. And even like, I, I, it, it makes me uncomfortable, even like at CrossFit, I've started going to CrossFit lately. Mm -hmm. And when they have, every time they make different um, requirements for the men and the women, Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, why? And then I'm like, oh yeah, I know why. (laughs) Because I'm, I mean, and especially we've talked about this, how I'm a, I'm relatively small for a woman anyway. I'm Mm -hmm. five, two. And my husband, um, Lucy's dad, is six one, so we're almost a foot different, and like I'm smallish, and so it it truly is not possible for me to lift the amount of weight right. that Dad lifts at CrossFit, or even to throw the like the medicine ball to do wall balls. I yeah. cannot throw it as high as the men can. Yeah, and it bugs me. <laughs> it bugs me. Anyway, but I but about your point too. I mean it philosophically, I've just been kind of like wrestling with this. Um, I just was reading the book, The Sacred Hoop, which um, is about gender practices in Native American traditions, which we're going to read later on the podcast. Mm -hmm. And I read that in the Laguna tradition, the penalty for killing a woman is twice as severe as the penalty for killing a man, because they consider all the lives that that woman might have brought into the world. And so you're like killing multiple people if you kill a woman. And so they revere women because of their potential for giving life. And I mean, we can contrast that against the passages that we read in like the middle Assyrian law or in the, the Bible actually, where that man gave a gang of rapists, his wife for them to do whatever they wanted with her. And then when she died from the injuries, he basically treated it like they had killed his cow or something. And he was mad that like one of his possessions got killed and ruined. But um, so, I mean, contrasting that, right? Like that Native American tradition with like, don't hurt a woman because she's the bearer of life. And then in another tradition, like a woman is is much less valuable than a man. I guess in the Titanic example of like Mm -hmm. wanting to save the lives of the women, Mm -hmm. it just makes me ask like, do women have special status as life givers? Um, I don't know. We're more physically vulnerable. And I do think the the life-giving function of women's bodies is pretty amazing, but maybe we should just frame it as like all human life is precious and sacred, right? And in the case of the Titanic, I'm afraid... I'm afraid the truth is that I would have frozen to death before dad, but it's just because he's bigger than me. I don't know. It's complicated for me. It makes sense. And I've noticed that there are so many issues that people turn into issues of gender that really don't need to be, especially many girls, including myself, 
grew up hearing boys say like, oh, so if boys and girls are equal, then I can hit a girl. Like, dude, no, but that's because (laughs) no one should be hitting anyone. Mm -hmm. That's an issue of violence, not necessarily gender. Mm -hmm. Like men should not be hitting men either Mm -hmm. unless someone wants to be hit like in martial arts or something. But then again, that's to do with consent. My my brother's jujitsu studio is about one third girls. Mm-hmm. So sure, if a boy and a girl want to fight, go for it. If any combination of any gender wants to fight, that's fine as long as they consent. You can only hit a person if they want to be hit. Right. But my guess is that also the majority of boys who are hit by other boys did not give consent. And mm-hmm. that needs to change too. Mm-hmm. And a mega... Uh, A major argument against the Equal Rights Amendment since it was first introduced has been that women shouldn't be drafted. And many women back that too because most people don't want to go to war. I know I don't, Mm -hmm. but I also don't want special treatment if I'm just as capable of doing something. In this case, I don't entirely understand why anyone should ever have to be drafted, but that's just because I think war is stupid. Mm -hmm. So once again, an issue of violence. And if you establish equality, you can't have it both ways. If you're a woman and you don't want to be drafted, then channel that activism into anti-war efforts, not anti-equal rights efforts, Mm -hmm. and take the power away from the aggressive men who are starting wars. You can't give women all the privileges that men have and then give them special treatment because that's not equality. I don't want to be treated like Adam's rib, but I also don't want to be treated like a weird angel baby. I just want to be a person. (laughs) Oh, that's funny. Yeah, I guess me neither. I don't want to be treated like either of those things either. Another complicated topic. I mean, when, yeah, you talking about the draft is such a relevant, interesting topic. And I, 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 you know me, I'm an honorary Quaker and, yes. and a pacifist, and I hate war. I loathe war. Um, if there is war, then I do think that the, the um, idea of a draft for men and women is interesting, like they mm-hmm. do in Israel, because I've known quite a few Israeli men and women. Mm-hmm. And so they've, they did time in the um, armed forces for Israel and and all the women I've talked to, and I have known several, mm-hmm. say that it was a really empowering experience for yeah. them, right? And um, so that's as much as I hate war and I don't like investing into the war machine for our country. I do yeah. think if you're going to do it, then men and women could serve together. Mm-hmm. Pete Buttigieg talked about that too. Yeah. And people don't really talk about how it's not like all men are qualified to be in the military right. anyway. There are men right. who really are less capable of fighting than women. And so it's, it just, I don't think it should be like divided by men and women because Mm -hmm. there's so much diversity within all genders of people's Mm -hmm. physical ability. Right. Right. Yeah. That's such a good point. And okay. So, and going back to the original article, where it says the words are motherhood and childhood are entitled to special care and assistance. Um, I Again, I do think that's because mothers and little children, especially if you think like babies, right, right are really at a very vulnerable stage of their lives, including the mother, right? I mean, mm-hmm. for example, 
in any refugee situation, women and children are at a far greater risk of starvation, of dying, you know, from the elements and of violence, actually, just because in general, their bodies are so taxed by physical hardship. And um, just, the, you know, by virtue of pregnancy, the stress of childbirth and mm-hmm. then healing after childbirth and everything. But but on the other hand, I just thought of this, too. I just watched the documentary on Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the cases that Ruth Bader Ginsburg made um, early in her career um, was Weinberger versus Weisenfield in 1975, where she represented a man whose wife had tragically died in childbirth. And he wanted to be able to stay home and take care of his newborn baby. And he was denied survivor benefits under Social Security, which permitted widows, but not widowers, to collect special benefits while caring for their child. So if he had died, his wife would have been able to get that help, but he couldn't because he was a man. So to your point, Lucy, Mm -hmm. about like we make a lot of rules based on like generalizations or Mm -hmm. our our understood generalizations about gender. And anyway, Ginsburg argued that the statute of that law as it existed at the time discriminated against male survivors um, by denying them the same protection as their female counterparts. So Mm -hmm. I thought that was relevant and supports your point. (laughs) And that's it for all the articles that we chose. So as we come to the end of our discussion, what would you say is a takeaway that you will remember from these documents? I'm so impressed and frankly shocked by how progressive so many of these arguments are, specifically related to gender, of course, but also race, religion, and education. And what Roosevelt and the general UN outline here sound like they could have been written yesterday. Mm -hmm. But the fact that these ideas are not new, that they've been introduced time and time again and are still being debated and ignored is incredibly frustrating. So it, it, it makes me both hopeful for our future and also disappointed that we still seem so far away from the same ideals we've had for decades. Mm-hmm. I would say that's a, a really great insight. And one of the themes, I would say, of the whole uh, podcast project is each a lot of the texts that we've read have made me feel really grateful on one hand and really disappointed on the other. Right. Yeah. Um, but like you said, baby steps. Um And it's good to articulate our aspirations and then try to live into them, I suppose. I think one takeaway for me was uh, watching the video of Eleanor Roosevelt reading the open letter to the women of the world. And then she did um, a roll call of women to come up and sign the document. Mm. And again, because I've read all these books, I have this sense of the timeline in my mind, right? How... The system of male dominance kept women from leadership for so long, and it kept women from any kind of civic engagement, literally kept them out of the locked room where all the decisions were made, where all the laws were made about all human life that would impact all humans, and half the humans were kept out of the room, right? right? Or more than half, right? Because people of color were kept out, and um, and people who weren't landowners. And it's so it, it's just been such an amazing experience for me to 
kind of experience the timeline chronologically and seeing Eleanor Roosevelt leading an international meeting of female delegates from all over the world was really moving. And then not only that, not only did she read the women's letter in the women's meeting, but she led the committee that produced the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So she actually led a group of men and women um, and read that letter as well and is credited as an author. So maybe that's even a bigger deal because it wasn't just a woman leading women and children. Mm -hmm. Like you point out, it was a woman leading a group of adults, including men, which should just be a given. Yeah, I think that's so powerful. (laughs) We are so used to seeing men in charge of men and women, and then women in charge of women. Mm -hmm. But women in charge of mixed groups is very much needed. And people of all genders should be looking up to wise and compassionate leaders period. I agree. I agree. Well, I love ending on that note, Lucy. That wraps it up. And thank you so much for doing this. I learned so much from you, as I always do. And I think you're amazing. Thanks, Mama. (laughs) For our next episode of Breaking Down Patriarchy, we'll be reading The Real Wealth of Nations, Creating a Caring Economics, by Rianne Eisler, who listeners will remember also wrote our very first essential text of the podcast series, The Chalice and the Blade. The Real Wealth of Nations was written in 2007, so it's out of order chronologically in terms of when it was published, but we're doing it now because we're kind of at an inflection point in history between the era of Virginia Woolf and Eleanor Roosevelt in the first half of the 20th century and the giant seismic shift that will be coming when Simone de Beauvoir publishes her world-changing book, The Second Sex. In 1949, it was published in France and then in 1953 in the United States. So we're at a real turning point in the project. And so we're going to insert The Real Wealth of Nations by Rianne Eisler right here. Um, This book applies Eisler's framework of partnership versus dominator models to systems of economics. And it shows how these economic frameworks impact everyday human life. It's an amazing book. So see if you can buy a copy of it or check it out from the library this week. And then also listeners get very excited because my reading partner for this book next week is the incredible Dr. Julie Hanks, who is not only a famous thought leader in the field of mental health, but she also is an expert in partnership um, theory. She wrote her PhD dissertation on the work of Rianne Eisler. And so she's an expert on the partnership model. She talks about it all the time in her practice and as an influencer um, on social media and on her podcast. Um, She's just an incredible reading partner. So I'm really, really excited to welcome her to the podcast um, in the area, one of the many areas of her expertise next week. So keep reading, keep sharing the podcast with family and friends, um, especially friends outside your own faith tradition in your own neighborhood and community. Um, Read the book this week if you can, and then join us for The Real Wealth of Nations, Creating a Caring Economics by Rianne Eisler next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy.